I want to welcome you to Gospel City Church and a special shout out to those of you who are joining us uh, from home today. And uh, there's been a lot of new faces here at Gospel City Church and uh, several have told us that they found our church during this season online and then recently they've showed up at youth group or on a Sunday morning and we're starting to meet some and some of you have never stepped foot in our building and yet you're faithfully worshiping with us every single week from your home and so let me just say thank you and you are loved and we're so glad that you're prioritizing the gathering of God's people we think that that's pretty important around here but my name is Micah Klutnati. I'm the Worship and Creative Pastor. But today I get to open God's Word with you. And if you have your Bible, hopefully you do. That's an important thing to bring to church. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And we're continuing today in our series that is called Jesus is King. And as you open your Bibles and uh, you flip open to Isaiah 53, before you even read it, before you look at it, come over here with me for just a moment. And I want to draw your attention to this place right here. I want to take you back about 2,000 years ago, approximately 1,986 years ago, Jesus was on the earth. Think about that. God in the flesh on this earth. And he would have found himself reclining at a table with his disciples and he was foretelling of his death that would come a day and a half later. Did the disciples understand everything that Jesus was trying to tell them in that moment? Definitely not. And yet Jesus at that table was instituting for us a tool of remembrance known as communion. So that for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, the people of God, the children of God could remember with purpose his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. At the end of this time together today, we're gonna partake in the elements of communion. But I want this entire service the remainder of our time together, I want you to prepare your heart to remember Christ's sacrifice and to partake of the bread and the juice together. Uh, when you came in, you should have got one of those little cups. If you didn't, run back and grab one even right now. That's fine. If you're at home, grab some. Pastor Trent sent a picture this morning of his apple juice and wheat thins. If that's how you jive with it, that's cool. Uh, but let's uh, get ready to celebrate communion together. But the Bible says that it's for believers only. And so it's for those who put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But also we're told in scripture to not ever come to the table of communion in an unworthy manner. And so let's allow the next several minutes of our time to prepare our hearts to remember Christ's sacrifice. Now as mind-blowing as it is to think about Jesus on the earth with his disciples, instituting the Lord's Supper 2,000 years ago, I wanna take you back even further in history today. Isaiah wants to take us back 700 years prior to Jesus ever showing up on the scene. 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Check this out. Isaiah 53 was penned with such specificity and such precision, foretelling of a servant who would come and who would be rejected and who would suffer and who would die and who would be victorious over the sins of mankind. 700 years before Jesus came, God was writing the story of salvation that would save humanity forever. 
Before we look at it this morning, let me just give you some of the history surrounding this incredible chapter that we'll look at today, Isaiah 53. It's been called the Mount Everest of Messianic prophecy. It's, been the, it's the most comprehensive foretelling of the Messiah in all of the Bible. It's often been described as the fifth gospel because of how beautifully it portrays the good news of Jesus Christ's redemptive and substitutionary death. Many past theologians have commented and marveled at the importance of this prophetic poem. Charles Spurgeon said this, it is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Augustine in the fifth century, smart dude, he said, it is not a prophecy, it is a gospel. Martin Luther said, every Christian ought to be able to repeat it by heart. It is indeed a biography of Jesus's life written 700 years before he ever came. It ties the Old Testament to the New Testament and it's referenced 41 times in the New Testament by almost every writer, by Jesus himself several times. And in Acts chapter eight, if you'll remember, we see the Ethiopian eunuch sitting along the side of the road reading Isaiah 53, asking the question of whom does this prophet speak of? And Philip rushes to the scene and leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ using Isaiah 53 in that very moment. There is enough truth in Isaiah 53 to change your life for eternity. Enough power to help you escape eternal hell and live eternally in heaven in right standing with God forever. Are you convinced of its epic importance in the Christian faith? Let's dig into it together today. I think it's so important to honor the word of God and there's so much that I could probably say, but it doesn't really matter. It matters what God's word says, so let's allow his word to speak this morning. Isaiah 53 really starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's a four, five-part prophetic poem known as the fourth servant song in Isaiah. So wherever you're at, let's get a copy of God's word. Let's get our eyes on it, and let's start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Now hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Father God, we come and Lord, we honor you. We say that you are worthy. We say that you are high and lifted up. And God, we thank you for your holy word, this letter that you have given to us that we might know the story that you have been writing from the beginning of time. That we might put our confidence not in the things of this world, but in your glorious truth. Lord, would you meet us in these moments that we have together today? And would you open our hearts by the power of your spirit and cause us to remember your servant who came on our behalf to suffer for our sins so that we might stand here today and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's several things that we could pull out of Isaiah 53. We could spend weeks on this chapter, but in the next 30 minutes or so that we have together, we're gonna pull four things out of Isaiah 53. The first is this. Jesus served us through his humble appearance and rejection. Jesus served us through his humble appearance and rejection. We pick it up in 52 verse 13, and it starts out pretty positive. Behold, My servant shall act wisely. Wisely here means he will have good fortune. He will have victory. He will win the battle, win the day. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So let me give you some context. The nation of Israel here, immediately upon hearing Isaiah speak these words, they would have immediately thought of themselves. Isaiah often referred to himself as a servant of the Lord, but most often in the book of Isaiah, when he says servant, he's speaking of the nation of Israel. And so when they heard that this servant of the Lord would be high and lifted up and be exalted and would have good favor, they would be like, yeah, we will. We will have good favor because they thought that they were the servant that Isaiah is talking about, but 
Indeed, Israel was a servant of the Lord for introducing salvation to the world, but they didn't realize that it wasn't going to come through them. Israel was a kingdom divided. Their capital had fallen. Their leaders were corrupt. All hope had seemed lost. And yet here Isaiah continues to introduce us to a substitute servant, one that would be a shock to many, one that wouldn't fit the identity that the world expected. And Isaiah says that the servant is high and lifted up, but he's not referring to the nation of Israel here. He's referring to a God that he had the privilege of beholding when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Ring any bells? Isaiah chapter six. We studied that already. Isaiah in the holy throne room of God beholding the Lord who is high and lifted up and he was cleansed and he said here am I send me and now here is Isaiah telling of the coming king who he saw in victory in heaven but was let into the divine mystery that the high and holy king would become a rejected servant a suffering servant a dying servant for the redemption of sin and humanity. Let's jump into verse 14. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. And so this high and holy exalted servant who would have good favor, the passage starts to take a turn and now he appears to be broken and crushed and marred beyond human resemblance. No one can recognize him. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Wait, you're telling me that this marred person, this marred servant, this disfigured servant would, would touch many nations? I thought we were the only nation, Israel would say. I thought we were the chosen nation. He will sprinkle many nations it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. All in favor of some kings shutting mouths, leaders shutting mouths, big amen, people shutting mouths. One day, every king, every leader, every person will shut their mouth and stand in awe because of what this servant will do. For that which they have not been told, they will finally see and that which they have not heard, they will finally understand. Verse one of 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's kind of unbelievable that this marred, disfigured person, this servant would touch many nations and shut the mouths of kings. And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has the saving arm of the Lord been revealed? Tell us, Isaiah. If it's not us, then tell us. Verse two begins to describe this servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was unimpressive. He didn't appear powerful like the kings of the world. It describes him as a, as a young plant, a root in dry ground, something that you would run over with the weed whacker and think nothing of. 
Even if you could desire the right and true Savior in your depravity, you wouldn't have recognized him if he was standing right in front of you. As human beings, we're drawn to beauty, aren't we? Jesus didn't fit that description. And this would have been a shock to the people who are hearing Isaiah speak these things. See, Judaism doesn't have a theology for the Messiah to not be impressive or to not be majestic. Judaism doesn't have a theology that allows the Messiah to feel their pain. They're not looking for a savior to take their pain. They just need a sympathizer, okay? But the message of self-sacrifice was going to be demonstrated right before their very eyes. God was going to demonstrate his strength through the weakness of his servant. Look at verse three. He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This innocent, blameless God man, this unimpressive servant who grew up on this earth, who was tempted and tried as we are, yet was without sin, this blameless servant of the Lord in human form who never did anything wrong. What did the people do? What did we do? We despised him. We rejected him. The humble appearance of the servant of the Lord who was okay with grief and okay with suffering though he was innocent makes us uncomfortable in our sinful broken flesh and rather than accept him as savior and Messiah, our rebel hearts despise him and reject him. I've got to share with you what John Piper says about verse three. He writes this, his whole demeanor, his style, his view of life and money and possessions and lust and prayer and worship and pride and humility and fear and faith, none of it endorsed our own rebellion. We didn't feel endorsed around Jesus. He was so lowly and unimpressive that our aspirations for power and reputation felt evil. His happy poverty made our wanting more and more feel selfish his willingness to suffer for others made our craving for comforts feel selfish. And so to protect ourselves, we despised him. We even hoped it was God that struck him. That would be a good endorsement of our rejection. And we rejected him. He was an offense. He was a rejected savior. Jesus served us by humbly appearing as God in the flesh and by taking on the rejection from mankind that should have been mankind's rejection from God. That's the first way that he served us. The second way that he served us, Jesus served us through his suffering. Jesus served us through his suffering. We pick it up in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The personal pronouns are staggering, aren't they? Our griefs, our sorrows. Everything that happened to Jesus should have happened to us. On the right side of the cross, 1 Peter says it this way in 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
700 years before he came, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah says that he will bear our sins and our griefs. And yet look what we did. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We assumed he was being punished by God rather than look upon this innocent, suffering man and realizing that should be me, we shrug our shoulders and say, man, God must be really angry with him. And because God is angry with him, we shout, crucify him, the king of the Jews. Verse five begins to paint the agony and the pain that would accompany the suffering servant. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. Obviously we think of the nails that went through the hands and the feet of Jesus as they put him on the cross. The Gospel of John in chapter 19, 24 gives us another instance of his piercing. Right before they took Jesus off the cross, they went to the thief on the right and the thief on the left and they broke their legs so that the thieves could no longer stand. They would just simply collapse and suffocate and die. When they got to Jesus, notice it didn't say that he was broken for our transgressions. It was prophesied that not a bone in Jesus, though he suffered, not a bone would be broken. So when they got to Jesus to break his legs, they said, oh, he's already dead. He doesn't, we don't need to break his legs. But for added measure, they pierced his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. We see that in John. But it also says in five that he was crushed for our Iniquities. His human form was crushed, his human pride crushed. And in Luke 23, we see that his strength and body was collapsing under the weight of carrying his own cross, so much so that they pulled Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to help Jesus carry his own instrument of death to Golgotha. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. To chastise is the act of scolding or punishing someone. In the gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, 29 through 30, it says, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Scolded, punished, so that we could have peace. Verse five wraps up, with his wounds we are healed. The NIV version says, by his stripes we are healed and the gospel of Mark in 15 verse five tells us that Pilate, unwilling to give Jesus the trial that he deserved, released Barabbas, the criminal, and scourged Jesus. We know that the Roman instrument for scourging, for whipping was a cat of nine tails. This whipping mechanism that had metal and sharp pieces riddled throughout it. 
And the idea was when it hit the back of the person being whipped, it would stick in the flesh. And when they would tear it away, it would lacerate the flesh and you would see the internal organs. You could see how our savior, this suffering servant would be striped from head to toe as he was whipped and scourged brutally in the courtyard. Look at verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This speaks of our sinful nature, our proneness to go astray and to miss the main thing and notice the emphasis on every one. You can't have the triumph of the cross without first recognizing your personal sin upon it. You can't have the good news of the gospel without first recognizing the bad news that you are a dirty, rotten sinner deserving of eternal separation from a holy God. You cannot sing, make me more like Jesus like we did this morning until you realize the suffering servant laid down his life in your rightful place. Jesus took on our personal iniquities. I think it can be easy to grow up in church or maybe hear this message and say, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross for sins. But have you made it personal? Like it's not enough to just say God died for the sins of the world. God died for your sins. God was nailed to, Jesus was nailed to a cross because of your guilt and your shame. Do you stare with disgust at the secret places of your heart and say that's the reason that Jesus had to die. That's the reason that Jesus had to suffer. And I wanna give it up. I wanna surrender it. Have you made the death of Jesus personal in your life? Because if you haven't, man, you're missing out on the good news of the gospel that Jesus gave his life. Jesus came for your sin and for my sin. The servant served us through his suffering. The third way that Jesus served us, Jesus served us through his death. Jesus served us through his death. Look in verse seven of 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away and as for his generation who considered, stop there, Jesus is acquainted with your oppression this morning. Jesus is acquainted with any affliction that you may be facing this morning. Jesus was acquainted with unfair treatment and unfair judgment. And it was by that oppression and unjust judgment that he was neglected a fair trial. And no one rose up to protest no one rose up to say, this man is innocent. No one rose up 
on his behalf. And yet look in verse seven, this servant, the suffering, mutilated, disfigured servant. Yet he opened not his mouth. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't share his side of the story. He didn't try to squirm his way out from under the oppression he was enduring. He made himself like a helpless lamb and willingly and silently went to his own slaughter, a slaughter that should have been mine and yours. Verse eight goes on that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. That's a poetic way, cut off out of the land of the living, poetic way of saying that he died. He was removed, he was killed, he was canceled because we didn't know what to do with him. He was innocent and he was perfect and yet he was humble and lowly and okay with suffering and grief and rather than accept him as Messiah, we despised him and rejected him and got rid of him, we killed him. And look in verse nine, the insults continue even beyond his death. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So we see that he was innocent, he was blameless, he was perfect. And yet they insulted him by burying him with the wicked, though he had done no violence. They insulted him by burying him among the rich. The rich here would have been people who lied and cheated for their wealth. Deceitful, lying men of no integrity. Jesus was buried among these people. He, it wasn't him. It wasn't his nature. It wasn't his character. But Jesus served us by willingly dying the death that we deserve for the sins that we have committed and was buried with people who are just like us. Wicked, broken, deceiving liars. The passage, if you stop there, seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? This servant of the Lord, disfigured and marred and despised and rejected, spit upon and beatily bruised, dying on a cross, buried with the wicked, and yet we know at the beginning Isaiah said that he would sprinkle many nations. Kings would shut their mouths because of this servant. And he will be high and lifted up. The fourth way that Jesus serves us, Jesus served us through his intercession. Jesus served us through his intercession. Intercession is simply the action of intervening on behalf of another. Look at verse 10. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his 
hand. Interesting turn of events all along. The servant who is painted in defeat and weakness is now being painted as victoriously paying for our sin and our transgressions. And under the oppression and the anguish of the suffering servant was a divine plan from the Father in heaven. What grace, right? What grace that the holy God of the universe would pour out his wrath toward your sin and my sin on his perfect, innocent, only son. Think about that. It was the Father's will to place your grief on his innocent son. It was the Father's will that Jesus would offer his life and soul as an offering to pay for guilt. God put Jesus to grief and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that means that as Jesus offered up his life, it was the payment for the guilt and sins and shame of the world. And check out what happens. He shall see his offspring because of this offering, because Jesus atoned for sin, satisfied sin, compensated what was owed because of our guilt. Those who have strayed like sheep can return as children of God. All we like sheep who have gone astray can return as the children of God because of this offering that the suffering servant gave not only that, but it shall prolong his days. Death won't be the end. There is everlasting life because of what Jesus has done. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The servant of the Lord became the carrier of the will of the Lord who executed the plan of the Lord to make a way for sinners to come home. Incredible. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Somewhere deep in the suffering soul as Jesus died on the cross and suffered in pain and took on our guilt, he could see satisfaction. He could see that God's wrath towards sin, that the payment had been satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He will sprinkle many nations. This death, this satisfied debt that was owed wasn't just for the nation of Israel, but it would reach to you here even today in 2021 so that many could be accounted righteous. This accounting term is really the doctrine of justification. Let me read you a working definition of justification. This is from Ligonier Ministries where R.C. Sproul was a pastor. It says this, justification is an act of God. It does not describe the way that God inwardly renews and changes a person. It rather is a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. So God declares 
the guilty as righteous, pardon, debt paid in full once and for all. And get this, I need justified for my own sin and from God's wrath towards sin. You need justified. You should be able to point to a time in your life when God stamped you as his child of God. For some, it's, it's probably very clear. Like I was doing my own thing and God stopped me dead in my tracks and he declared that I am a child of God and I put my hope and trust and faith in Jesus and I have never looked back. Some of you, that's your story. I grew up in a Christian home. I can point to all kinds of moments where God's grace was in my life, where my parents were telling me about the gospel message and telling me that I'm a sinner and telling me that I need his grace. I can point to a lot of moments where I didn't trust in those things and yet moments where I had trusted in those things. I point to a time when I was six years old. I came home from Awana, as it was called, and I memorized scripture at that. And, and you know, you can put scripture in your head and it never do anything to your heart, but I think the Holy Spirit was using that scripture to do something to my heart and he started transforming and in my six-year-old little mind that didn't know all the answers, I went to my dad and I'm like, Dad, I... I I wanna make Jesus king in my heart. I wanna ask him to forgive me of my sins. I didn't know everything and what that meant, but my dad sat me down and he told me I'm a dirty, rotten sinner deserving of hell. And yet Jesus gave his life and suffered on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. And he beat death and he beat the grave. And if I put my trust in that, and if I confess that he is Lord and savior, that can change my life forever. And it did, praise God. And guess what? Now, in the courtroom, when you stand before a holy God, if you've been justified, he no longer looks at you as the guilty sinner deserving separation from him. He looks at you and he sees his perfect, spotless son who was sacrificed and who suffered and died for my guilt and shame that I bring to the table and rather than God holding me, the sinner, accountable for what I have done and what I have brought to the table, he pardons me so that I can live in his grace forever. Can you point to the time that the Lord justified you? Maybe today could be the day. I gotta believe that there's some people here who are suffering because they're trying to serve their own way into a right standing with God. You don't gotta try anymore. Jesus was the suffering servant. Today could be your day of justification. You could point to this day. Don't rush past it. Don't leave this place. Put your trust and hope and faith in what's already been done at the cross and follow Jesus. Look at verse 12, this is where the victory lies. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus made himself like us. He was numbered with us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Isn't it incredible? And he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Though he was viewed as a rebel and though he was treated as a sinner, 
And though he was buried with the wicked, this suffering servant intervened on behalf of all who would call upon his great name. All who would repent of their sins and believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. Can I ask you to bow your heads where you're at this morning? Let's not rush past this glorious truth from the prophet Isaiah, from God himself. I want to talk to you if you've yet to put your hope and faith in Jesus. Man, what are you waiting for? You're not promised tomorrow. Life is but a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You know what the suffering servant says? He says, stop trying to do it on your own. I've served it for you. I've satisfied it for you. So open your hands, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God and that God has used Jesus to pay for your sins. If that's you right now, just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm done. I want to follow you. Tell him you want to repent of your sin. You want to turn from your sin. Tell him to forgive you. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and your shame and your guilt. You know what he'll say? He'll say, I already have in my precious son, Jesus. Let this be the day of salvation so that you could ever, forever point to this moment, this time, when God justified you, the sin sinner, as free. For everyone else in the room, I just pray that you would sit and savor this holy moment and remember what Christ has done for you. Oh, to be more like Jesus.